Even though today is Joy Sunday, even though we've lit the pink candle representing the, the passion of joy, the, the gift of joy, I, I think it, it seems a bit strange to light joy, the joy candle on the third Sunday of Advent, because this is when we get as close to Christmas Eve without being right on it, and this is when people's dispositions during the season starts to change. We, we, we've been happy, the lights are up, we're, we're, we've all sort of felt joy, but now that we're a week away from Christmas Eve, that joy turns to something else. Uh, sometimes it's worry or fear, or sometimes it's anger, resentment. Uh, the, the in-laws are coming, we don't have all the presents wrapped, you know, who knows what's about to come in the next week. Uh, sometimes it doesn't really feel like joy. And I know someone for whom this time of year is not the most wonderful time of the year. Someone for whom the closer that we get to Christmas Eve, the more grouchy, the more grumpy, the more mean-spirited he becomes. This person that I know uh, is so, in fact, mean-spirited during this season that uh, everybody knows it. It's not just individuals, but like the whole community knows you stay away from this guy as we get to Christmas. It's not just his neighbors. It's like kids in the neighborhood just avoid his house. His employees are terrified of him. They, they cast their gaze away from him. And every year it seems like nothing's going to change. This guy's just going to be miserable. Every Christmas, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until that one fateful Christmas Eve when he was visited by three ghosts. <laughs> now, it's important for you to understand that in the, the rest of the story that you need to imagine your heads that all the characters I'm going to talk about are Muppets, okay? <laughs> Because I think we can all agree that the superior Christmas Carol is the Muppet Christmas Carol. If only because Michael Caine brings an Oscar-worthy performance to it. He is not acting next to Muppets. He is acting next to, you know, Shakespearean thespian actors named Miss Piggy and Kermit and Gonzo and Rizzo the Rat. Do you know the story of Ebenezer Scrooge? The story of Ebenezer, this cold-hearted... You know, when John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, when I, th I think of Ebenezer Scrooge when I hear that. When, when in uh, Home Alone, you know, the character says, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal, I think of Ebenezer Scrooge. There's nothing good about Scrooge until this story, until he's visited by the ghost of Christmas future, of Christmas past, and Christmas present. And his life changes. And of course, now some of you are thinking, yeah, that's a good story. And in fact, the Muppets make it amazing. But what does that have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do with Mary? What does it have to do with the Magnificat? That's the scripture I'm going to read in just a moment. And as I was reading it this week, I was transported to the Muppet Christmas Carol because Mary says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. The story of Ebenezer Scrooge is someone who is mighty, has all the money in the world and has no joy whatsoever. And because of the visit of the ghosts, he is brought low. Tiny Tim, Bob Cratchit, his whole family, they are lifted up in the story. They are the poor, the outcast, the forgotten, the overlooked. They are raised high. There's this inversion that happens in the Christmas carol. But best of all, one of the last lines in the Magnificat says, God has sent the rich away empty, and he has filled the hungry with good things. The end of a Christmas carol is Ebenezer Scrooge giving away his money. He leaves empty and he fills the hungry families in his neighborhood with good things, with a Christmas feast. Did you know that a Christmas carol is actually not a Christmas carol, it's an Advent carol? It's a story of Advent. 
Ebenezer Scrooge. Brought low, Tiny Tim. Raised high. A movie for us. I have set myself up for this. I have no idea what I'm going to do next week. I've done three movies three weeks in a row. If anyone has an idea of the Benedictus, Zechariah's song, and any movie that connects, I would be happy to have a conversation with you after worship today. So here now, the scripture that comes to fruition in A Christmas Carol. This is Luke 1, 46 through 55. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from the thrones. He's lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. Sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I never really know what's going to happen with a sermon. I never really know. You know, week after week, I sit down with these ancient words from this, this book that most of us have come to time and time again. I lift up my prayers to God. Lord, give me something to say. I listen for the movement of the Spirit in my reading, in my praying, in my conversations with people from the community, and I begin to write down words about the Word, but I never really know what's going to happen. I never know what's going to happen. But I do know that sermons don't belong to their preachers. Now, on some level, of course, I know the words to say because I wrote the words. I know what I'm trying to say because I'm the one trying to say them. And yet there have been so many Sundays since I've been a pastor when someone has approached me after worship to say something about something that they heard in the proclaimed word. I will be quoted back to myself. It is a strange thing to be quoted back to yourself 15 minutes after you said something. And so people will gather after worship and they'll tell me something about something they heard in the sermon. And the funniest thing happens every once in a while. The words quoted back to me from me, I never actually said them. <laughs> months ago, here at Raleigh Court, I preached a sermon upstairs during the traditional service. I preached it at the first light service too. But after the traditional service, someone came up to me, shook my hand, and they said, I'm so glad you said what you said about Joe Biden today. And I thought... I don't think I said anything about Joe Biden, did I? I mean, I write down every word that I say. I didn't, I didn't say anything about Joe Biden. Two minutes later, another person, while my head is still like going through the Rolodex of the sermon, someone else from the church came up to me, shook my hand, and said, I'm so glad you said something about Donald Trump today. And I thought, I wrote the sermon. I didn't say anything about either of them. But what I say and what gets heard are not the same thing. It's strange. 
We always hear more than what the sermon says. That's the wild and sometimes reckless nature of the Spirit. God takes these kind of words, and while they're in the air, God does whatever God wants to them before they get to your ears. And so today, perhaps it's best to begin with a bit of a disclaimer. You know, we've got Mary, the Magnificat. This is one of the most charged collection of verses in all of Scripture. So I just want to start with this disclaimer today. I am not going to say anything critical about your political proclivities. I'm not going to say anything about a donkey. I'm not going to say anything about an elephant. I'm here for the lamb. I'm not going to make any judgments about your judgments. I'm not going to say anything negative about how you make your money, how you spend your money, how much money you have. I'm not going to say anything about any of that, but you know what? God might. You never know what God is going to say in a sermon. John Wesley was uh, at a church gathering when he heard someone stand up and begin to talk about the beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Famously, John Wesley said he felt his heart strangely warmed. It was the spark that ignited the thing that became the Methodist movement. It happened because someone stood up and started to talk about what Scripture says. C.S. Lewis, the great writer C.S. Lewis, was inspired to write his incredible book, The Screwtape Letters, during what he called the most boring sermon he ever heard in his life. You never know what God will do through a sermon. God will say whatever God wants to say, whether we want to hear it or not. And if sermons are out of our control, and I really do think they're out of our control, then songs are even worse. Songs are much, much worse. The best example of this, of course, is the song Amazing Grace. By a show of hands, anyone ever heard of the song Amazing Grace before? Yeah, you all better raise your hand. There has not been a funeral I've done where we have not, as a church, stood up and lifted up the words of Amazing Grace together. The great gift for me as the pastor is I, I know the song so well I don't need to look in the book anymore. So I just get to watch people while we're singing it. And the strangest thing happens. During a funeral, while we sing Amazing Grace, I can look out and I can see people whose tears are landing on the hymnal. And at the same time, I can see people smiling from ear to ear. It's the same song, the same tune, and totally different reactions because God is saying something different with the same song. So if sermons are out of our control, songs are worse. The angel Gabriel arrives in Nazareth. It's a town that's not even on the map to tell an entirely unimportant young woman that she is going to be the mother of God. So Mary goes to stay with her relative Elizabeth in Jerusalem. Now, why does she leave from home? It's an interesting question, a question we don't often pose. Scripture doesn't actually tell us why she leaves from Nazareth to go to Jerusalem, why she goes to Elizabeth's house, except maybe for the fact that her belly is beginning to grow and she does not have a ring on her finger. Imagine what that might look like. So she leaves. She goes to a strange place, to a relative she barely knows. And Elizabeth, barren and unable to have children, is herself miraculously pregnant with another promised baby. Elizabeth opens her home. She opens her heart to her relative Mary, and she greets her with these words. She says, Mary, blessed are you among women. I wonder if that's what we would say if a pregnant teenage girl came to our door. 
Blessed are you among women. Mary receives a strange and unexpected promise from the angel. She receives a weird and wonderful greeting from her relative. And now the time comes for Mary to say something. It's time for us to hear from her. And she speaks, but it's not a sermon. It's not a speech. It's a song. My soul magnifies the Lord. He has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. When I read these words and, and, and know that they're a song, I imagine it's a stage-setting musical number for the likes of Broadway. It's dark, you know, dark set. There's, you can't see anything until a spotlight emerges and this young teenage girl uh, appears out of nowhere and she starts to sing about all that God has done for her. But in the matter of a moment, the genre of the song changes completely. It goes from this hit penned by Sondheim to a 1960s protest song. God has scattered the proud. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones. I mean, you give Mary a guitar and a harmonica and she's leading the revolution. <clears throat> God fills the hungry, sends the rich away empty. Martin Luther calls Mary's song the gospel before the gospel. She proleptically proclaims that which will come to fruition in her son. Jesus is the one in whom and through whom the world will turn upside down. Over the last few weeks, we've received a lot of Christmas cards at the house, something I love about this season. I'm sure some of you have amassed a collection of Christmas cards already. We have them strung up on some twine on the door so we see it every day when we're walking through the kitchen. All these wonderful Christmas cards and there's all sorts of words on them, you know. Joy to the world. The hope of heaven is here. All these sort of glad tidings. I wonder, have you ever received a Christmas card that said, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts? Have you ever seen a Christmas card that says, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones? I bet Hallmark would make a killing with those kind of cards. Those aren't the words we often think about during Christmas during Advent. I've heard of an old tradition among a particular tribe in Africa where before a child was born, the mother would write a song to her unborn child. She would create words and melody and she would sing to the child in her womb surrounding the unborn child with this individual and unique song. The song would be taught to others in the village so that when the child was born, the midwife and the family would sing the baby into existence. And of course, it wouldn't take long before the whole village would learn that child's song so that if the kid fell <clears throat> and scraped its knee, someone could come and sing the notes of their song and bring them comfort. That that song <clears throat> would not only birth them into the world, but would follow them every day of their lives. In many ways, the Magnificat reminds us that Jesus had a mom. That God has a mom a mom who, in the words of Beverly Gaventa, nursed, nurtured, taught, played with, told stories, and sang to him every day of his life. I mean, Mary sings because the news in her womb is too good not to share. And yet the news that she bears, this gospel as a person inside of her, will call into question everything we think we know about how everything is supposed to work. It's her song this protest song, this gospel song that has long frightened those in positions of power. There were places just within the last few decades, places like 
El Salvador, and places in Guatemala, where public readings of this scripture were forbidden because it called power into question. Even Luther, the one who called this the gospel before the gospel, <coughs> Luther famously translated the Bible from Latin, this, this language that only the powerful and the elite knew, into German so that everyone could understand it. But when he came to the Magnificat, he left it in Latin. Why? Well, Luther was in the pocket of German princes, princes that were protecting him from the Pope. And when you have a song that says, God is going to take the powerful from their thrones and cast them down, he said, ah, maybe I don't want people to know that part. Unless we think such reactions to Mary's words or relics of the past or something that just happens in other places, I wonder how these words sound to all of us. Because depending on our social location, depending on the amount of money we might have in our own bank accounts, this song can delight us. It can also disturb us. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, it can open our eyes to the foolishness of how we've been living. And like Tiny Tim, it can raise us up to hope beyond our understanding. Before Mary bears God into the world, she bears God's word for us. Before she's a mom or a saint or an icon, frankly, before she's even adult, Mary is a prophet. So what do prophets do? Prophets reveal God's revelation to us. Prophets, in short, tell the truth. I wonder when she wrote the song. Did she write it while she was walking by herself to Jerusalem? Did she... Did she just spontaneously erupt with this song when she saw Elizabeth? As every line, every stanza is laden with other scriptures, other promises that God had made, promises that Mary would have learned through her faith. Except, weirdly, Mary takes all of these promises, these future tense instances of what God will do, and she puts them in the past tense. She takes God's will and makes it a has. Now, I know this is grammar, so just stay with me for a minute. She takes God's will and turns it into a has. She holds all of the promises of her people in both her words and in her womb, and she sings of them as if they've already been done. God has shown strength. God has scattered the proud. God has brought down the powerful. God has lifted up the lowly. She sings not just because she's pregnant, but because of what this child will mean what this child means and what it meant. She praises God for cracking open the heavens and pouring out justice on a world thirsty for it. She points to the power of the spirit because her son will relieve the proud and the powerful from their thrones of self-righteousness. Her son will fill the poor with more than money can ever buy. And she sings of it having already been done because time is different with God. The incarnation is not God's last minute Hail Mary, pun intended. It's not a Hail Mary to fix all that's wrong with the world. It is, it was, and it always will be God's decision to dwell with us. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. God was always going to dwell with us because God always dwells with us and God will always dwell with us. There's joy in that. And yet, and yet this song, it's also threatening, particularly to those in places and positions of power because it calls into question their power. I mean, long before the cross stands on the horizon, Mary's song reminds those with ears to hear that her son's kingdom is not from this world. 
things are getting flipped upside down, which will always sound like good news if you're on the bottom, but it will always sound like bad news if you're at the top. In short, Mary's song is dangerous. But if you've ever known the power of a song like this one, then you know that you can't help yourself from singing it. You can't stop yourself from singing the truth. And we don't talk a lot about Mary in the church. We'll give her a Sunday or two every Advent. You know, she kind of comes into focus this time of year, but then we forget her for the rest of the calendar of the, the church year. Sometimes we, we talk about her encounter with Gabriel. We magnify her magnificat. But when we do talk about Mary, we usually only do so as a way to elevate her as nothing more than this paragon of femininity or we reduce her to a passive character who just gives birth to something more important. And we miss how powerful she is herself. We miss how the adventure of faith for her is what makes the world change. We miss how even as a young girl, she rivals the prophets of old. We miss how she yearns for God's will to be done in a way that should scandalize us on this third Sunday of Advent. Mary has a song to sing. A song that she sings while her son is in the womb. A song that she sings every day of her life. Which means that for as much as Jesus gets his gospel from his father in heaven, he also learned it on his mother's lap. So what song has God given you to sing? What song has God given you? Whatever it is, I hope you fill your diaphragms with all the air you possibly can and you shout it out from the rooftops. God has given all of us a song to sing. And the song has a name. It's Jesus. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.